With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Taking no prisoners, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome to Unleashed on TNT. I'm your host, Mark Morano. All right. Uh, we have exciting guests for you after the first break today. We're going to have Ann McElhaney of the Unreported Story Society. And her and uh, her husband, uh, fellow Mackler, have been quite literally documenting uh, in the most creative way, the Michael Mann, uh, Mark Stein climate trial of the century. Uh, and she'll be joining us after the break to talk all about what they've seen at the trial. These are the clips I've been playing all week, showing you the audio, the uh, actor portrayals of uh, Mark Stein and Michael Mann and the lawyers. Uh, and they're just doing a great job. So we have updates. We've had uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, attending the trial now several days. And we've also had Congresswoman Michelle Bachman attending the trial. And we have other major scientists like Richard Lindzen and Judith Curry, climatologists scheduled to attend. So we'll be we'll be joined by her. But first, as promised, uh, I wanted to go through some and try to try to wrap up this whole Davos coverage. Uh, and there's just a couple clips that I couldn't I alluded to it yesterday about Donald Trump's uh, 2000, I guess it was 2018, then he gave another speech to the World Economic Forum 2020. Now, they didn't like Donald Trump, but they had to invite him, just the way they had to invite the Argentine president who went there and condemned him, just the way uh, they, they're sort of forced sometimes world leaders, they had to invite Donald Trump. So here's Donald Trump. This is the World Economic Forum 2008, President Trump in Davos, laying it on the line of the vision, and then I'm going to play you his 2020 speech, which was my personal favorite. But let's go ahead. This is the way, if you're going to the World Economic Summit, oh, the Heritage Foundation president, he got to, he got in some great licks this year at uh, as an invited member, actually on the panel. So let's go back to 2018 and hear what Donald Trump told the World Economic Forum's Davos, Switzerland annual meeting. It's crushing an anti-business and anti-worker regulations on our citizens with no vote, no legislative debate, and no real accountability. In America, those days are over. As President of the United States, I will always protect the interests of our country, our companies, and our workers. We are lifting self-imposed restrictions on energy production to provide affordable power to our citizens and businesses and to promote energy security for our friends all around the world. No country should be held hostage to a single provider of energy. America is roaring back, and now is the time to invest in the future of America. And it was, that was a great pro-energy speech, pro-economic growth speech, and anti-centralization speech. Well, Donald Trump outdid himself. And this is probably my favorite Donald Trump speech as president. 2020, this would be January, he went to Davos and att attacked the climate change prophets of doom at Davos. And I, this is, again, just fantastic. Give it a watch. It's a little over a minute clip. This is not a time for pessimism. This is a time for optimism. Fear and doubt is not a good thought process because this is a time for tremendous hope and joy and optimism and action. 
But to embrace the possibilities of tomorrow, we must reject the perennial prophets of doom and their predictions of the apocalypse. They are the heirs of yesterday's foolish fortune tellers, and I have them, and you have them, and we all have them. And they want to see us do badly, but we don't let that happen. They predicted an overpopulation crisis in the 1960s, mass starvation in the 70s, and an end of oil in the 1990s. These alarmists always demand the same thing, absolute power to dominate, transform, and control every aspect of our lives. We will never let radical socialists destroy our economy, wreck our country, or eradicate our liberty. America will always be the proud, strong, and unyielding bastion of freedom. In America, we understand what the pessimists refuse to see, that a growing and vibrant market economy focused on the future lifts the human spirit and excites creativity strong enough to overcome any challenge, any challenge by far. Wow. I loved his litany, the overpopulation, the climate change failures. He just nailed every single participant pretty much of these conferences. This is where the corporate government collusion happens. This is where the lobbyists go to meet presidents and prime ministers and legislators. This is where the alumni of the World Economic Forums penetrate the cabinets, in the words of Klaus Schwab. School go, the Young Leadership Program, half the cabinet of Trudeau is said to be uh, pro protégés of Klaus Schwab. And you have all of the mid-level bureaucrats and cabinet members. I mean, it's a powerful, powerful organization. And as George Carlin once said, you don't need a conspiracy to explain it. It's a convergence of interest. And he, what he said was these people went to the same schools. They went to the same social, social networks. They're the same social economic status. And they know what's good for them and what's not good for them. They know it because they've been bred their entire life from kindergarten all the way through. So they know instinctively what they can and can't do and what the agenda is. And I mean, and they know what the, they know the agenda to follow. And that's what Davos is all about, is setting and laying out that agenda. So when you have someone like Donald Trump, who when that was in 2020, gave a speech like that, it was just Wow, phenomenal. And the history of all these Davos meetings, I, I don't think you'd find a more powerful speech than his 2020 speech. All of his speeches there were good. What disgusts me, and I go to these UN climate summits annually, uh, 18 out of the last 20, was like a, the most recently in Egypt and then again in Dubai. You have all these Republican legislators like Congressman John Curtis of Utah. We believe climate change is a problem and we're going to solve it using, uh, we're going to give donations to our, uh, we're going to refund the donations to our GOP donors by doing carbon capture. And we're going to be doing planting trees. And, and we think the Green New Deal is just a little far, but we believe in the climate crisis, but we just believe it's a little 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 too far we're going to come out with a little little measured green new deal and this is what they do they don't challenge any of the crap that comes out of the united nations they don't challenge the agenda and this is what the republican party is battling this is what kevin mccarthy was all about he was all about calling climate change a problem we're going to fight it and there's a whole contingent of these republicans uh, particularly in congress uh who want to do want to accept this instead of fighting back and they just say kudos to donald trump for that speech. And what exactly are we fighting? Well, this past week, the director of Net Zero Watch in the UK, who we met up with when we had the UN Climate Summit in Scotland, uh, the Net Zero Watch, it's run by Benny Peisner and they had representatives there and I've been to their events. 
Andrew Monford uh, gave a speech on the totalitarian interview on the totalitarian nature of net zero. And I think this will explain exactly what we're up against with this Davos United Nations and now the World Health Organization pandemic treaty. I mean, if you're, if you're against net zero, you're against public health. That's misinformation. You can be silenced, censored, canceled, and climate is now merging into a public health threat. That's what the World Health Organization was urged by 200 medical journals the week before the UN Climate Summit in Dubai last just a couple months ago uh, to, to make climate a public health emergency. So let's hear what Andrew Monford, the director of Net Zero Watch, a climate skeptic, has to say about this clip three. So the pain, I think, is going to be is going to be felt um quite badly and i think this is what is bringing people around um part of the problem is that that um you can't have cheap electricity if you want wind power um if you're reliant on wind power because it's so variable and because we don't have any technology that um will uh, fill in the gaps when the wind isn't blowing, um, it's essentially what um, what society is doing is it is going ahead and hoping that somebody will come up with something um, um, to store st some way of storing energy so that we we have a, a a reserve for when the wind isn't blowing. Someone someone once said it's it's like jumping out of out of an aeroplane without a parachute and hoping that somebody invents one on the way down. It's completely irrational. Um, but that's what we're doing. And that's exactly what we're doing. That's a great analogy because they always just say, oh, well, we'll, we'll fix it. We, we just need to go with these. We need to ban fossil fuels now. And, and Joe Biden just announced uh, the liquefied natural gas terminals are going to be restricted now in the United States, which is insane because we're leading the world and reducing, we were under President Donald Trump, leading the world and reducing carbon dioxide emissions because of natural gas replacing coal, because natural gas fracking and just natural gas in general is a much lower emitting uh, fossil fuel than, uh, uh, than coal. And as coal diminishes, we have been leading the world better than all the signatories of the UN Paris Agreement around the world. The United States, when, when Trump was president, we had pulled out and, oh, I can't believe you. What scientific rubes or deniers, and yet we were the ones reduced, if you care about reducing carbon dioxide. And make it, let me be very clear, I don't. But he's exactly right. I mean, they just want to hope something happens. There was a great scene in the film, Thank You for Smoking, and the character played by Rob Lowe, where they were talking about this science fiction movie where they'd be smoking in a atmosphere like on a spaceship and they said well how can you smoke there would be pressurized air and it would blow up the whole thing and it wouldn't work it's like oh that's fine we'll just insert a line in the script about we invented that gizmo where you can allow yeah allow them to smoke that's the way they're looking at the industrial uh activity in our electrical base they just think like oh let's just force it to happen and something will happen you know we'll invent that parachute midair before we splat on the ground that's a fantastic analogy okay well this is an oldie, but a goodie. I just thought I'd replay this. Bill Gates admitting that he is probably the highest carbon footprint in the world. And the reason this is important is because unless these people pushing this, like I, like Abigail Disney is an inspiration for me. And I got to show the clip set. I don't know that I've actually showed it. I, I, did a, I think I have because I did the Fox News segment on it uh, for the Climate Hypocrites Award. Abigail Disney is the heir, to, the, one of the key heirs to the Disney fortune. Very wealthy. She's personally given up flying private jets. She's made it her mission 
to go after the 1% wealthiest and go after them for their carbon footprints. She's a climate activist, but it's a climate activist I can get behind and support. Because if you're Bill Gates, if you're John Kerry, if you're Leonardo DiCaprio, if you're Al Gore, if you're the UN climate chief, if you're uh, Prince Charles, King Charles now, you cannot be for all these restrictions on the rest of us while, while we sit back and, uh, and have to, we have to be restricted on every aspect of our life, but you can do whatever you want. That is what's inherently wrong. Let's hear what Bill Gates, clip four, how he just openly admits his carbon footprint. Are you the right messenger on this? Because you fly private planes a lot and you're creating a lot of greenhouse gases yourself. Yeah, I probably have one of the highest greenhouse gas footprints of anyone on the planet. You know, my, my kind of personal flying uh, alone is gigantic. And it's, it matters. And this is why John Kerry was so deceptive when he went before the United States Congress and told the congressional committee I don't own a private jet. I've never owned a private jet. My family doesn't own a private jet. And then he was forced about 20 minutes later to admit, uh, yeah, my wife owned a private jet. And of course, they sold it right when all this negative publicity came out. So technically, she doesn't own one now, but they did own one uh, for many years. And John Kerry flew in it and John Kerry flies all around it, but he didn't own it because it was in his wife's name. Remember, he married very wealthy Ketchup Harris. Uh, when I worked for Senator Inhofe on the Environment Public Works Committee, we had people always say, oh, you're getting fossil fuel money, which is just bunkum because the fossil fuel industry is now funding the, the climate industry because they want to be a pear green. And you have things like the natural gas industry giving money to the Sierra, Sierra Club to demonize coal, like $30 million, more than the combined budgets of any organizations, which the media would call de climate denial organizations. You can combine three of the top organizations and it wouldn't even equal the one, you know, the series of donations from natural gas to the Sierra Club. But when you have uh, these billionaires literally trying to restrict the rest of us, the UK Daily Mail is reporting more on the survey, the top 1% of the world, which has the multiple homes, the yachts, the private jets, the hugest carbon footprints in the world, they're the ones with percentage-wise among all socioeconomic groups, the ones that want the most restrictions on travel, on food restrictions, and it's insane. Now, this is the next clip. This is the Bear CEO, Bill Anderson, takes aim at the rice farming industry, claiming rice production is one of the largest producers of methane. Remember, they're going after meat eating based on methane. They're also going after human breath because our breath contains some methane. So let's watch clip seven. So in most of Asia, rice is still grown with traditional methods, which requires flooding the fields. And when you flood the fields, you, you basically kill the weeds with water, um, which sounds good, except it takes huge amounts of water and it leads to anaerobic uh, fermentation of the, of the weeds. They basically decompose underwater and when they do that, they release methane. And so actually rice production is one of the largest producers of methane, which is you know many times more, more toxic in terms of greenhouse gas emissions than CO2. So we have an opportunity to replace that with so-called direct seeded rice that requires about 40% less water and 90% less methane production. Um, so these are examples that are they're good for farmers, they're good for eaters, and they're good for the environment. Do you understand what he's saying? First of all, methane is the irrelevant greenhouse gas, multiple peer-reviewed studies on this top scientists. It's, do not worry about methane. This is just a conjured up scientific boogeyman. But what he's saying is, 
we can't go on life as normal. You can't have these rice patties. You can't have small and intermediate size, medium size farming, agriculture. Everything's got to be technology, technology inject, infused, and everything's got to be centralized, nationalized, internationalized, so that there's one standard, and the standard's got to be compliant with net zero saving the earth. And that's why they're going after coffee. That's why they're going after indoor houseplants. That's why they're going um, after uh, the this the rice production. That's why they're going after meat eating. And this is why they're going after pizza ovens. They want to have a complete sort of, I guess, international standard of net zero on everything. And obviously, small, intermediate, this is what's happening in the Netherlands, these small farmers, small agricultural, small business can't afford these regulations. And they don't care because their goal, ostensibly, other than actually it's about power, is saving the earth. So how are they going to convince us to go along with this insane agenda? Well, we got some scary reasons there. Let's take a look at what Davos. Now, that last clip was from Davos talking about rice production being you know, a, a problem for the planet, and we can, we need to have severe standards to keep right. And if you like rice, they got to be in charge. Davos wants mind control. Now, I know this is now sounds like I'm in the the realm of Art Bell, and and, and uh, I, I thought, yeah, I don't know enough about Art Bell. I'm not saying that derisively, but he was known for conspiracy theories late at night on the radio. But this is saying it out loud. This is not secret documents. This is not an obscure blog. This is not uh, you know, anonymous sources. Let's go to clip five. This is what Davos World Economic Forum in the past week, what they're talking about controlling your mind. Bringing the kinds of sensors that people have become accustomed to, such as rings and in watches, into everyday devices, but it breaches the final frontier of privacy, that is, what people are thinking and feeling. Initially, what they will be capable of doing is very high-level brain state reading. Things like, are you tired? Are you paying attention? Is your mind wandering? Are you happy or sad? Um, they maybe enable interaction like up, down, left, right. Brain state reading. Sounds pretty interesting. So, you know, your little Fitbit, like, oh, it monitors my sleep and my uh, rapid eye movement and my heart rate. Well, guess what? They claim the technology is there to start monitoring your state of mind. And let's just go a little further. Just Here's Klaus Schwab himself with Google CEO, uh, I guess it's Sergey Brin. I don't think it's Sergio, it's Sergey Brin. At Davos, this is a couple years ago, but listen to what Klaus Schwab and he are talking about, and Google CEO are talking about out in the open, clip six. Advancing very fast. But can you imagine that in 10 years when we are sitting here, we have an implant in our uh, brains, and um, I can immediately feel, because you all will have implants, I can, and we measure your, your brain waves, and I can immediately tell you how the people react, or I can feel uh, how the people react um, to your answers. Uh, is it imaginable? Um, I, I think that is imaginable. I think um, I, I think you know you can imagine that. You can imagine well, you're going to be sort of transplanted into you know the the internet, so to speak, to live forever in a digital realm. Uh, you know, you can imagine that, you know, you just in your biological incarnation are going to live to be some, you know, very long age. Uh 
the, it looks like the, the, the Sergio Brin, Sergey Brin from Google, the, the founder, he was a little uncomfortable. Like we're talking about this out loud. I can imagine he was a little bit uncomfortable, but you saw the relish in Klaus Schwab's eyes and his just excitement. Like we'll be able to read the audience mind. We'll have brain and skin plants. Pretty scary stuff. And they're saying this out loud. It's not a conspiracy if they're saying it on the main stage for all the world to see. Just, I just have to keep saying that. This is not some shadowy thing. Oh, people always say, oh, you have anonymous. Or, no, I just played you Klaus Schwab talking about mind control. I just played you uh, other Davos speakers talking about reading brainwaves and using uh, things like Fitbits and more advanced Fitbits to, to read your state of mind uh, and how they want to use it. It's not that technology can do X, Y, Z. It's that these masterminds from above are thinking how they can use this technology to control us even more. So. All right. When we come back, we are excited to have join us Ann uh, McElhaney. She's the uh, of the uh, Unreported Story Society, and she's going to give us a whole lowdown on the Michael Mann, Mark Stein climate trial of the century. We'll be right back on Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Stay tuned. TNT's Misty Winston. She says, how is anyone still talking about October 7th? What Israel has done since October 7th is many times worse than what happened on that day by any conceivable metric. The only way to feel otherwise is to believe Israeli lives are worth many times more than Palestinian lives. How is Israeli suffering still being centered over vastly less significant acts of violence three months ago, while ex exponentially worse violence and suffering is being inflicted by Israelis right this very moment? If your nation is attacked and you respond to that attack by immediately murdering thousands of children with incredible savagery, then you forfeit any right to expect anyone to give a shit that your nation was attacked. Israel responded to the Hamas attack by doing something much, much worse than anything Hamas has ever done, and in doing so, completely delegitimizing itself as a state and completely validating everything the Palestinian resistance has been saying about the state of Israel since day one. Misty Winston on today's News Talk TNT. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines ready to serve. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. The demand for charitable services has skyrocketed, and nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing, nurturing, rescuing, honoring, protecting. Caring, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes across all missions has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. Without CO2, the world stops breathing. CO2 sustains all life on Earth. Government, the WEF, and the elite believe humans are the carbon they really want to be rid of. Today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT. This is your host, Mark Morano. All right, well, joining us now is Ann McElhaney the un of the Unreported Story Society. Her and her husband, fellow McAleer, have been ingeniously 
covering this Mark Stein, Michael Mann trial in DC Superior Court. They've hired actors and they have uh, acting reenactments of key scenes or maybe even the whole court trial. Uh, they have an actor playing Mark Stein, Michael Mann. You can hear the lawyers. You can hear all the recreation of this. So first of all, welcome to the program, Anne. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be here. All right. Well, first of all, how did you come... How did you come about to decide to cover this trial in this unique way with with audio uh, recreations of each day's trial? Uh, and it's been fantastic. How do you how did you meet Mark Stein? How did you become involved? And I understand you were mentioned in the courtroom uh, yesterday. This is my second time being mentioned in the courtroom. It's very funny. But yeah, I mean, to go back and unpack a number of those questions, because I mean, I yeah. said, why did we decide to do this the way we're doing it? So we've done this a number of times. We have gone to court cases. And when there isn't an opportunity for cameras to be in the courtroom, when they won't allow that and they won't allow recording equipment, um, you know, a lot of very important trials are not being covered. So we actually went every day, for example, to the Harvey Weinstein court case. We went every day to the court case of Kevin Spacey in London. Um, so we've done this a number of times and used the verbatim testimony from the court um, and use that as a way of reporting every day. So what we do is we go to court every day, we get the transcripts, we edit the transcripts down because obviously it would take, you know, the whole day, which would be like whatever, six hours or something of testimony. Um, so we take out the most dramatic moments and we have actors in Los Angeles reenact those dramatic scenes. And the actors are obviously it's Los Angeles, the town, every waiter is, uh, is an actor. So there's no shortage of talent. And then we distill that and edit it overnight and every morning the day before uh, testimony is available. Um, and it's all free and people can go to Climate Change on trial and listen to the podcasts. And why are we doing it? Why are we doing it? Because this is the, this is the court case of the century. This is Climate Change on trial. Uh, Michael Mann, you know, very famous for creating through statistical work, let's say, um, a hockey stick graph, a very dramatic graph, which shows that basically through basically all of history, the temperature was the same, basically. But at the end, once we started using the combustion engine, basically, and using fossil fuels to make everything really lovely, the temperature is going completely off the charts and we are all going to die. So because of that chart, which became uh, it was used on the front page of the IPCC report of that year, um, and became you know, used in every school in the world, every university in the world. This was shoved at everyone all over the world. The implications um, and the consequences of everyone taking this chart seriously have been that the defunding of fossil fuels and an over-dependence on climate, um, on weather-dependent on weather energy sources, so wind and solar, which is a disaster for all of us. I mean, and we know that from what happened in Texas, the great freeze in Texas. So this is an incredibly important court case because this hockey stick in a way is on trial. Now, everyone in the courtroom is saying constantly, this is not about climate change. This is not about climate change. This is not about climate change. So what it is about apparently is that uh, two writers, Rand Simberg from the CEI, from the Competitive Enterprise Institute and Mark Stein writing at the time for National Review wrote two blog posts, the two different men wrote two blog posts, sort of Rand Simberg came first, uh, Mark Stein then heavily quoted from Rand Simberg, comparing 
Michael Mann to Jerry Sandusky. And people that are listening to your program will remember the name Jerry Sandusky very, very well. Penn State, head of the, the football um, situation there. I'm Irish. I know nothing about your strange sports. But anyway, Jerry Sandusky, big star of the, of the sports program in Penn State, was convicted of pedophilia, of um, raping young boys in the showers, basically, at Penn State. Um, and Penn State were discovered to have covered up for him, have known that he was doing it and covered up for him. So the president of Penn State went to prison. Um, and I think one of the another another very high up executive in the Penn in the Penn State um ecosystem also went to prison. So in those two articles by Rand Simberg and by Mark Stein, they compared the treatment of Michael Mann with the treatment of Sandusky. And again, sorry, I'm to explain after michael mann's um hockey stick came out a number of years later the climate gate emails were revealed that michael mann in communication with other climate scientists talked about hiding the decline he talked about hiding the decline this and michael's nature trick mike's nature trick and how he had actually come to create the bend in the stick that was so dramatic and the phrases that were used were hide the decline and mike's nature trick so there was because of that and because of the revelations from the climate gate um situation that which which was based in the climate unit at East Anglia University. Anyway, there was a massive hack of those emails, and this is where these emails were discovered. There was another investigation. So obviously there'd been an investigation in Penn State about Jerry Sandusky, which covered up for Jerry Sandusky. Then there was an investigation into Michael Mann, which completely exonerated Michael Mann. So quite obviously. Uh, Mark Stein and Rand Simberg both said Michael Mann is the Sandusky of climate change in the same way that and, and because of the fact that he'd been treated so nicely by Penn State. Sorry, I, that's a, it's a very long explanation. I hope I yeah. hope I kind of covered it. Well, this was 2011, too, that they originally wrote this. And now it's what, th 12, 13 years later? I can't even do my math. Yeah. I guess it's 13. What took so long? And yeah, there were other co-defendants. I think National Review and CEI were involved. How did they get paired out of this? And I guess Stein is acting as his own lawyer. Does he have a legal degree? Is he is he a lawyer, or is he just, he's just he's not? Is he does he have a legal background? Or act as his own he, he lawyer? Or no? It's very it's it's really interesting, actually. By the way, he does not have a legal background. But what's very interesting is Michael uh, is that Mark Stein has has been in these situations many many times uh, in Canada and also in the United States. He has never lost in a case that he has been involved with. And so after a certain amount of time, he started to represent himself because he learned so much about the law <laughs> through being involved in so many of these cases. I mean, he took the Canadian, the Canadian government went after him uh, about things he had said, calling him an Islamophobic and trying to, and trying to silence him for things he had said about Islam. He took them, he took them on and made them change the law in Canada. So he he completely destroyed them in Canada. Equally, he had another case um, against uh, CRTV, I think it was, um, down here and in the states. And again, he won dramatic, dramatically won. Um, so he he's his best defense. And I think it's uh, you know and you, you know you know Mark you, you yes. know Mark. He's very articulate. He's very fun. He's charming, and he does a great job at defending himself. Yeah, I mean, if I needed a lawyer, I would like to hire Mark Stein. The fact the fact that he's not a lawyer wouldn't bother me one bit. I, from what I've seen in this courtroom, when I went to the preliminary hearing, 
If you guys, he's, he's just phenomenal, his opening statement. Yes. Can't wait for cro intense cross-examining. I keep joking that Michael Mann, when the actual intense cross-examining by Mark Stein, that Michael Mann's going to A, be sick. He's going to want to do it via like written transcript, or he's not going to want to do it. In, I mean, he's going to try to cut, get out of it somehow. Um, but looking at this case, uh, when the, the, at the heart of this is Michael Mann is alleging he was defamed and his yeah. reputation suffered and he had damages. What? How did his reputation, what does he claim the damages are and how did he suffer from this Mark Stein and Ram Simberg columns? This is very interesting. And this is this is the part that is, I mean, it's been so fascinating. We're now day, I think yesterday was day seven of this trial. And what he is failing to establish is exactly what you're pointing to. So if you're defamed, you have to prove damages and the burden is on the plaintiff. The burden is on Michael Mann to bring evidence to the jury to prove that he has been damaged, materially damaged, by the way, not alone, you know, emotionally or whatever. And I'll talk about the emotion in a minute, but on the material side, he is comprehensively failing to establish that. They won a kind of a point early on Friday, on Thursday morning by saying, you know, they brought up a chart and they had this demonstrative and they put up a chart and basically said, well, in the four years prior to these articles, these offensive articles being written in the four years prior to that, he brought in 3.3 million to Penn State in grant, um, you know, in, in grants that he, that he attracted, 3.3 million. And in the four years, after these odious articles appeared, uh, apparently, allegedly odious articles appeared, he brought in 500,000. So that's a very, that seems, you know, that's pretty good, right? That sounds good. It was very clear. It was put up on a chart for the for the jury to see. And it was like, okay, it's okay, something happened. However, there has been, as you've just said, 12 years have passed, an enormous amount of time has passed, an enormous amount of lawyers have worked for an enormous number of hours, all of them charging $1,500 an hour. Um, so, there's been an enormous amount of time. As I said, don't forget, the burden is on Michael Mann to prove a, a material damage. So for the grants that he didn't get, the grants that he failed to get after these alleged odious emails, he has failed, even though he was asked, to find any witness from any of those grant-making committees on any of those boards to come forward and say, oh my God, we read about you being compared to a child molester, and we said, we're not going to give you money. So it'd be a very easy thing to do, by the way. If it's true, if it's true what he is alleging, then just ask somebody from one of those committees who love him, by the way. Don't forget, those people love him. So why would he not get one of them to come and say it in open court so that we could all, so that, so that the jury could hear that? And I think a very interesting point that was made on Thursday, and a brilliant point was, the whole world, I mean, you know, I'm from Ireland and all of that. People are from all over the place. The whole world came to know about a college called Penn State in 2011, arising out of the Sandusky scandal. The whole world and the whole world had an opinion on Penn State then. And that opinion was that it was the corrupt and awful, diseased, cancerous institution that protected a pedophile. So the whole world had a negative opinion of Penn State. And the point was made, you think that might be the reason people didn't give you a grant? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, right? Well, so the burden again, and he's not proving it. Sorry, Mark. I would add just the fact we know enough of him his involvement in the climate gate scandal. He, they were all toxic from Phil Jones. Uh, there were many scientists who came forward 
um, like Richard Mullins and also uh, there's a guy named Zarita and many other scientists who criticized the methodology. We know, and it was all became public, all of his colleagues at the UN who were criticizing all his methods. So it would make sense that just that alone would mean, okay, this guy's hot. There's a lot of controversy. Even his own colleagues don't support this hockey <laughs> stick. That you think that would be enough of a reason? It had nothing to do with what Mark Stein or Rand Simberg wrote, so that's that's fascinating. So he claimed he doesn't have really any evidence of this damage. One of the things that came oh, out, I guess, oh, it was I yesterday. To, I, oh, no, I have I have to tell you though. Yeah, so sure. so that was on the money side, right? On the money side, you know, the damage can't be proved, right? But then I thought the fantastic thing was that at one point he then pointed to this this incident that happened. This is about his emotional damage. And oh, in a grocery incident, store, right? Or something? Yeah, I heard about it. Oh my God, Wegmans in the Happy Valley or whatever they call the place. So Wegmans, yeah. so Wegmans market, I don't know. We don't have Wegmans in California. But anyway, this Wegmans, he was in Wegmans with his wife and daughter. And according to himself, this is a, a precious moment in his every week. Um, is going to the supermarket. And I was thinking, it's a form of child abuse, I think, actually, itself, bringing a child to the supermarket with his parents on the weekend yeah. with her with her parents. But anyway, he's in the Wegmans, and he gets looked at by someone in a strange way. And there's an actual comic, um, very funny comic routine with Rowan Atkinson about this very thing. Somebody gets arrested in the UK. And what were you arrested for? Looking at me in a strange way. So somebody <laughs> looked at him, in a certain, somebody looked at him, um, I, as he said, the meanest look, that's how he said it in court, the meanest look I've ever seen. And as and, and as Mark Stein- and nothing really, else, I didn't say like, you're, you're you, I can't believe you, you're a fraud, nothing like that, okay. just a look. No, and they no, actually used this in court. Yeah. Uh, no, that's, that's hugely important. Thanks for saying that, Mark. Exactly. Didn't say, oh, you and your hockey stick. Didn't say you and Sandusky. Didn't say you from Penn State. Didn't say, didn't do anything to identify him or, or make that the guy was even identified. Um, so yeah, no, none of those things. And Mark made a really good point. Mark, Mark, of course, is so funny, Mark Stein. And he basically yeah. said, you know, where exactly in the supermarket did that happen now? And don't forget, of course, that Mark Stein has, you know, has whole cat thing. And as a cat lover myself, I am a huge respect for this. And he said, you're not, is there any chance at all now that you were in, for example, the aisle with the cat food and that that was somebody and you were standing in front of the fancy feast and maybe the guy is glaring at you because he wants to get at the fancy feast and you're blocking his view. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought that that was very funny. But to point to this, you know, the meanest look I've ever, and I thought, you need to get out more, um, by the way, Michael Mann, because I can tell you, I live in, in Venice, California, and I'll tell you one thing, I get a lot of strange looks a lot of the time, and who knows what the person is thinking. But the idea that you could offer that as evidence of damage is ludicrous, given exactly the point you've made. The man never said anything, didn't use his name, didn't mention the hockey stick. So it's just like, somebody looked at me weird, and I think it's your fault. Yeah. Well, he, uh, did he mention hate mail? Because Michael Mann has been in a couple oh, different movies and documentaries. And of course, I, have, I, I, I would put my hate mail up against his. I have an active <laughs> death threat against me that yes. was posted. Yes. And uh, you have a law enforcement vest. I mean, I'd like Correct. to I'd like Correct. to put up but everyone. If you're heavily involved in this, you're going to get threats and you're going to get yes. crazy emails. So anyway, but yes. what is his what is his evidence there? What has he done? And, in that's, exact, and that's exactly what I said as well in our podcast, uh, you know, you, you, I would, you know, I'll show you, I'll show you mine, by the way, yes. uh, Michael Mann, because my God, what you're suggesting. So he basically pointed to three particular emails, two of them from the one person, by the way, in his hate mail, in his bag of hate mail. And, uh, but this is the one that he brought to court that he talked about. And it's from um, somebody called Mustafa Overlord at gmail.com. So people who are listening, by the way, could write to Mustafa 
overlord at gmail.com and say, how are you? How is things going in your overlord world? So that's, he quoted those. And basically, you know, they were exactly as you're saying, Mark, there weren't anything like the stuff that we get, which is, I mean, I got, I hope you hang from a short rope. I hope you have, I remember very clearly, I hope you have um, mentally handicapped children. I hope your children are disabled. Yeah. You know, that's the stuff we get. Ah, oh, delightful, right? All in his work. Michael Mann pointed to these, you know, you're nasty or whatever, but nothing, nothing at all as serious, nothing like a death threat, nothing like that. But again, those were part of this evidence of damage. It's yeah. very, very thin to non-existent. All right, well, we'll take a break, but when we come back, I want to know, how is Michael Mann paying for this? Is he moonlighting at another university to pay the bills? We'll find out the answer to that. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. We're talking with Ann McElhaney, uh, who's been attending the trial daily. And I'm sorry, what's your website again, Ann? Give it out. So people people need to go to climate, just go to go online anywhere and go to Climate Change on Trial, Climate Change on Trial podcast, and you'll hear all the episodes. Climate Change On Trial uh, podcast. We'll be right back with more of Ann and Michael Mann, Mark Stein Trial. Stay tuned. Right now, the forgotten poor are waiting for healing and care, for life-saving medical care, for a chance to live with dignity and hope. They are waiting for Mercy Ships and you. Mercy Ships is the largest floating civilian hospital in the world with volunteer medical staff and crew who donate their time to save lives. And now, as our newest state-of-the-art hospital ship sets sail, Mercy Ships will double our ability to reach children and adults who need us now. Without the work of Mercy Ships, these patients don't have another option. Mercy Ships is answering the call to serve suffering people who have nowhere else to turn. Together, we are going to some of the world's most desperate places and bringing a wave of hope and healing to those who need it most. To learn more about this wave of hope, go to mercyships.org today. While serving in Vietnam, a grenade took my ability to see. Today, I'm a sculptor creating new visions. Now, my fingers are my eyes. As a veteran, I know the challenges of life can be great. In my art, turning a lump of clay into something beautiful, that means a lot to me. Life is like that. We each must use what we can to make things better. DAV helps veterans like Michael get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. Now, I show others how they can create something with their own hands. With support from DAV, more veterans can shape their lives into a thing of beauty. My victory is bringing beauty into the world. Michael Naranjo, May your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Mark Morano is unleashed, and he's taking on the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT. This is Mark Morano. All right, we're continuing our discussion with Ann McElhaney of the UnreportedStorySociety.com. And she is embedded, our reporter embedded on the scene at the uh, Michael Mann, uh, Mark Stein climate trial of the century. Uh, welcome back to the program, Ann. Thank so you. Thank you. The question I have here, and this was stunning revelation, is who's been paying 
Michael Mann's lawyers. Uh, I was figuring Michael Mann was cashing in his retirement, his 401ks, but that's not the case. Who's actually paying? Do we, and how is this? Yeah, how this is, is Michael a, Mann? Able, yeah, this, this is was, a decade-long lawsuit. Yeah, this is this is a huge bombshell. I, this, to me, was a massive p- a revelation. We discovered, um, I think it was at the end of testimony on Wednesday, that Michael Mann has not spent any money at all on this uh, lawsuit. And if he if he loses, um, it won't make any difference either. So no matter what the outcome is either, and after the trial, he is not indebted to anyone. He won't owe anyone any money. So, you know, I got a quote actually from Melissa House, who's one of the, you know, a colleague of of Mark Stein's and who's in court every day. And she, and I I don't have the quote right in front of me, but basically she said, you know, this this is a situation where if you have no skin in the game, it doesn't cost you anything to destroy someone's life. Uh, it's an interesting thing as well. There's a very interesting legal point here. In the UK, if you lose in a defamation case, you are you bear the costs of the other party. You have to pay the cost of the other party. And they have that law to stop frivolous pursuit of defamation cases of this nature. Uh, this is not, unfortunately, is not the case here. So even if Mark Stein wins, he will not get his costs. And it is frightening amounts of money. We discovered that My- Michael Mann, as I said, is not paying anything out of his pocket and has not one, not two, but three law firms representing him. And wasn't one of them at one time, or maybe still is, was a former big tobacco law firm? Uh, Correct. Yes, I think that I think that came out the other day. Yeah, exactly. Now I, okay. I, I have no problem with that. I, I think everyone deserves a good defense, so I don't care who anyone's client is. Um, and I actually really have a, feel very strongly about that. Uh, given, well, it's given funny what, because they always try to link climate deniers to big tobacco. You know, yeah, tobacco does. Yeah, of course, that's why it's. Of course. So how? So what's your speculation then? You think this is like who's paying? These lawyers, you think it's some foundation, George Soros linked? It's like, uh, who do you think is behind it? Is there any way you think to find out journalistically? How would we find out who's paying these lawyers? I don't think I don't think there's any way of finding out. And it certainly didn't come out in discovery. And apparently they're not required to say who's paying. But, you know, when you when you sort of sit in court and you hear about Michael Mann's life and his lifestyle, I mean, at one point he was he talked about that he had won a prize and he shared it with somebody. He couldn't really remember how much money it was. It was one hundred thousand dollars. Now, Mark, you and I, you know, somebody if we had won $100,000 anywhere in the last decade, I could rem- I will remember the very day and the hour you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that it happened, right? So that kind of gives you a sense of he wasn't even very sure. He couldn't really remember. That's how much money Michael Mann is, is getting, you know, from, from various people. And also he has these very tight relationships with Al Gore, with Leonardo DiCaprio, who he, he himself said he has a bromance with. So he's probably been, I mean, I was saying it to a friend today, he's probably been on the Leonardo DiCaprio um, yacht and I'm, you know, I'm, I think it's fair to speculate that, you know, George Soros probably is on that yacht every now and again as well. And this kind of money, this five, $10 million that would be involved in terms of costs, legal costs for a decade of this thing is a nothing burger to somebody like George Soros. So, yeah. you know, it is somebody like that who's paying or it's some very, very wealthy foundation, the Tides Foundation, who have more money than you can ever believe. Um, and more money than God is, the, jo- is the, the joke that we often say, you know. So he's got fr- he has friends in high places. Let's say that's right. He's got friends in high places. So there's no end of people lining up to pay. Now, I know he had the similar lawsuit against Tim Ball in Canada, and I believe he he didn't even I guess I think the court ended up throwing it out and and demanded damages from Michael Mann. But Michael Mann's never going to pay it. I guess the Canadian court can't compel him 
to pay damages. Do you have very, any information yeah. on that? Yeah, well, it's very sad, and that kind of came up, and they kind of tried to shut that down, but I think the jury did get to hear about Tim Ball, who died in penury because yes. of Michael Mann, who pursued him in a lawsuit that that was, that Michael, that, that Tim Ball was successful in, um, and that the court ordered, um, ordered Michael Mann to pay. He never paid. And when Tim Ball died, and he unfortunately died, the poor man, uh, in penury, he had to crowdfund. They had to crowdfund for his funeral. So right. that's who, so Michael Mann, and I think another thing I wanted to say was, and I think it'd be interesting, interesting for your listeners, is because of the nature of discovery, um, the defense have been able to kind of wade into Michael Mann's correspondence, an enormous amount of Michael Mann's correspondence, not just the climate gate, but beyond that, I think. And the, le- the he, way- Let me ask you this. Is he a nice guy? Oh my God. It's really <laughs> shocking. It's actually really shocking, Mark. And I actually made the point to somebody the other day because I remember, you know, being at college myself or whatever. And I remember people who taught me and, you know, they were they, universally kind of crusty, you know, crusty women and men, you know, academic, terribly polite, by the way, and very correct and all very, you know, and, and loving what they did and all of that. And it's a very interesting insight, by the way, into the world of the climate, the climate science, science uh, community, certainly the climate science catastrophe community, the way they speak about people, and particularly Michael Mann, how he speaks about other people. And I have just, I let you, you know, your listeners might, I, I'll just read a couple of these, just two of them. You know, here's one very short Michael Mann wrote to a guy called uh, Tuck 40, whatever, but he's basically writing to a whole bunch of people. My hope is that we can ruin this pathetic excuse for a human being through this lawsuit. He has been referring to Mark Stein, the pathetic excuse for a human being. And here's another email. I'll just give you this only two. Um, With each such action, he's adding to that. We're actually, so we're quite happy he's doing this. One fringe benefit, again, about Mark Stein, one fringe benefit of the lawsuit will be to ruin this odious excuse for a human being. And he, and he spoke equally vitriolically, by the way, about McIntyre, a horrible way he described yeah. McIntyre. Go into that, too, by the way, after you read what he said about him. Why won't he, Why is he so afraid of him, them testifying, Ross McKittrick and Stephen McIntyre? But go ahead. Tell me what he wrote about McIntyre. Oh, I, I, funny, I don't have the do I have the lines in front oh. of me here? A horrible line about I can't I wish, I wish I could remember the name of it, what he said about him. I won't see it now, but um, just horrible. I mean, really. Um, I, I was just saying to someone, I was saying to a friend of mine, you know, I mean, and I'm, I mean, you've met me, Mark, I'm very badly behaved and I have very bad language when I've had a couple of drinks and I don't remember speaking like that about anybody, right? Like I literally don't remember speaking like that about anybody and particularly yes. putting it in paper and writing like that. And he's writing like that in the academic community. It's, 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 it's very, it's, it's, it's certainly unbecoming. It's very unbecoming to speak like that. And one of the things that came up on Friday, actually, that you might find very interesting and your listeners might find very interesting was uh, we heard about Judith Curry, somebody called Judith Curry. She's a very, very uh, well-established, well-respected yeah. um, climate climatologist. Um, and he basically, and this was brought up very well, he wrote these horrible emails about her insinuating that she slept her way to the top. Um, writing that she actually went to Penn State as a student and started having an affair with a married uh, professor. None of that was true, but he was really happy to have that uh, be circulated in the community um, about this woman, uh, Judith Curry. And and, and it's like, it's an extraordinary thing. If, if, you know, if I, you know, let's imagine you and I are academics, Mark, you know, let's stretch the imagination here and imagine that we're academics and that I 
strenuously disagree with something that you've said, you know, let's have it out, Mark. Let's you and me have this out and whatever. Right. I'm not going to say that you're sleeping around. I'm not going to call you an odious human being. I'm not going to call you a bastard, by the way. Um, I'm not going to call you, uh, that's it. I'm not going to call you an asshole, by the way, which is what um, McIntyre was called, an asshole. I, you know, I am not going to speak like that to you. I'm going to say to you, you are wrong, Mark, and I'm going to prove it to you. And let me, you know, get out your numbers there. Get out your chart and let's go through it. Why do I have to, and that reduction, this is like 16 year olds. I'm actually, it's an insult to 16 year olds that you would speak like that and use that kind of language. And this is not talking to his friend in the pub. This is talking to academics, other academics. And the other point, I, I, maybe I, I'll, sorry, I, I'll stop talking for a minute here. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. Well, as I say, what, what was the final determination on Stephen McIntyre and Ross McKittrick, the two? mathematician statisticians who took down a man's hockey stick originally are they allowed to testify yes yes and they're coming um and that'll be i mean I, that, that'll be really great i've met both of them and in fact we interviewed them both for our um documentary back yes. in the you remember not evil just wrong and really lovely gentlemen actually and the idea that they're called these horrible ways that they're described it's really just it's really shocking that somebody would talk like that but you know but we learned an awful lot i would say in the last seven days we've learned an awful lot about michael mann and i think one thing that definitely i felt really landed with uh, the jury and it would land with anybody really um, because it, everyone gets it is Michael Mann has constantly and continuously described himself as a poet, as a, as a Nobel laureate, as a, as a, as a Nobel prize winner, you know, and everybody knows about the Nobel prize. Everyone yeah. understands the Nobel prize, you know, Marie Curie, won the Nobel Prize, Marie Curie, you know, um, and, and the, 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 you know, this extraordinary scientist who through her efforts, she, I think she got radiation poisoning because she, you know, did all these amazing things, you know, Einstein or whatever, you know, this is the kind of people who got the Nobel Prize, right? He calls himself a Nobel laureate. He is not a Nobel laureate. He did not win the Nobel Prize. Um, and he was, and in the first, I think the first instance that anyone has ever known of in history, the Nobel Committee wrote to him and said, you got to stop it. Stop doing this. You didn't win a Nobel Prize. I mean, really extraordinary right, thing to happen. Um, and he continues to do it. So on his website, if you go onto his website, he has, you know, articles and, you know, um, what do you call that? You know, screenshots of articles about him where he is described as a Nobel laureate. He has not corrected the record. He has not. And he could, you know, continue to allow that circulate. And he did not win the Nobel Prize. And the Nobel Prize is something. And it's the something. It's basically it's it's basically stolen valor, by the way. You're not Marie Curie. You know, you didn't do anything fabulous. And the Nobel Prize Committee did not recognize you. Um, and it's stolen valor. It's like the people who say they were in Vietnam. You know, I was in the Vietnam War. You weren't. You know, you're a liar. And it's there's something despicable about stealing the valor from Marie Curie. And I played that uh, earlier this week. I played the audio actor recreation of Mark Stein, uh, making fun of that claim, saying the EU won the Nobel Peace Prize. And yeah, that's like anyone on a nude beach claiming in Europe that they contributed to the Nobel Prize. But by the way, the and other thing actually, is- actually, Mark, just, you need to stop there, Mark, now, and you need to recognize that I am actually, let's be honest, I am a Nobel Prize winner. I'm a member of the European Union. The there European you go, Union. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, What's interesting is this is the Nobel Peace Prize is what Michael Mann is not even because I interviewed John Clauser. He won the actual Nobel Prize in physics and Michael Mann makes a big deal. Real quick, in about 20 seconds, we have to go. Mark, uh, Bill Nye has been showing up. Why? What's his role here? 
Um, you know, I don't know. Another bromance, I think, of Michael Mann's. Um, and I, I think, and he sits, by the way, with part of the legal team, which I, I don't think it's. I think it's a little prejudicial, by the way. But anyway, he's showing off at the party.